Lumos Maxima. Lumos Maxima. Everything changes. This is the fucking one. <sighs> First off, welcome back to another edition of the Swim in the Light podcast. I am your host, Leo Soares. And today, I'm going to be talking about a very special movie of mine. A movie that I hold near and dear to my heart and soul. The peak of filmmaking for fantasy movies in the 2000s. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so <laughs> I wanted to talk about a lot of things when it comes to the books, how it relates to the movies. But today, it's different because not only has it remained true to the book, but this movie has gone through a lot of changes when it comes to cinematography, visual effects, score, themes, the idea of death, fear, depression, all of that. And I think Alfonso Caron was a peak filmmaker in that. Objectively speaking, it's to me my favorite of the Harry Potter movies. There's a reason why a lot of up-and-coming filmmakers see this as a peak moment in cinema. There's so many things where you could talk about when it comes to the main antagonists. The main antagonists of this movie are not even actual characters. The main antagonists are fear, death, depression. Like I said uh, earlier... This is where the series got dark, started to get dark. There's still some of that whimsical fantasy children's book within the movies. But after this, shit started to get depressing. Shit started to get dark. And I'm actually pretty excited about that. This was the turning point for the rest of the series. This is where we've heard of the prophecy. This is where... We got more in-depth with the main characters, their inner struggles, what they're dealing with. It was beautiful. And not only within each of the characters, but the story was told in a rather impressive way. Because of Alfonso, I'm surprised Alfonso has not gone back to direct any more Harry Potter movies. And he's gone on to direct big-name movies, won Oscars, got nominated. He is a true filmmaker. He has a vision unlike no other. And it was expressed a lot through his long takes for simple conversations 
it was important with Lupin and Harry, with we Ron Weasley's dad and Harry. Simple conversations involved very long takes. Reason being, we Alfonso wanted to know a sort of heavy way to introduce the the plot and the looming threat going on in the background. So it, it was a nice way to to make you realize that, oh, this is going on? All right, there's still this going on in the background, so be careful. Don't forget about me. And another thing that I really loved is how he would zoom into wide shots. The passage of time was conveyed really well with Alfonso's filmmaking. And damn, I wish he came back. I mean, I'm cool with Mike Newell and David Yates. And you'll you'll see why I like them, each and every one of them. Goblet of Fire is still my most played movie out of all of them. But I can't think of... I can't think so much of the, about the potential that this series would have taken if Alfonso Caron took over for the rest of the series. It would have been... It was a missed potential, to say the least. It was... To me, it stood alone as one of the best objectively good films of 2004. And there was a lot of Academy love, too. There was visual effects, original score, no cinematography, though, which was a shame. Because I believe, and I'm a very cinematography kind of guy, I truly think that Prisoner of Azkaban was robbed of at least a nomination for cinematography. And another thing that I wanted to mention was the importance of the Dementors and Expecto Patronum and the Patronus Charm overcoming our fear. As you know, Dementors are the guards of Azkaban prison. And if anybody were to escape, they would hunt them down and it wasn't pretty it wasn't charming it wasn't whimsical they were really taking out souls and killing people and that to me says a lot about depression because it's not a quick death it is a slow burning loss of life and it really focuses on the apparition, well, the, the terrifying theme from the apparition on the train. And to me, I think that scene alone stood the test of time when it comes to a looming threat, a very suspenseful and horrifying threat to come. Yet, it was still a children's fantasy. So it was a perfect way to really trap the characters in a moving object trapped them with these soul-sucking demons. It was very terrifying, but it was great. Now, another thing that I wanted to figure out is the new Dumbledore. As you all know, 
the Dumbledore of the first two movies, unfortunately, he died. Richard Harris was replaced with Michael Gambon. And to me, honestly, I prefer Michael Gambon because with the first two movies, he was an old, wise, I guess, guru, such as in vain of Yoda. And Dumbledore portrayed that really well in the first two movies. But we always heard about how he's the most powerful wizard, how he's done this, he shaped the world, he shaped Hogwarts, he's protected so many people. And yet we don't really know about that until this movie starts. Yes, we see his aggression come out a lot more during these movies. But to me personally, when it comes to the tales and myths about Dumbledore, Michael Gammon portrayed him really well, starting with this movie. And like I said, there's a lot of mentions with the Time Turner, the Marauder's Map, and the foreshadowing of the prophecy of what's yet to come. The prophecy being from Professor Trelawney with Harry and Voldemort meeting once more with the Master and the Servant. It's very menacing and it's very sinister. But again, it's still PG still Warner Brothers but the fact that it's so airtight in that I feel it I feel like it's a beautiful fantasy film I cannot give this movie any more credit than it's already given in the past 15 plus years of its existence almost 20 now a very I want to say mixed feeling that I had was about the plot twist. Obviously, going into the movie, we thought Sirius Black was the main antagonist, wanting to kill Harry for the murder of his parents and just wanting to finish that act. A lot of people thought Sirius Black was the main antagonist. And it was smart... With the plot twist being that Wormtail is the true antagonist of this movie and framed Sirius Black. But it was confusing at times. Uh, the fact that Wormtail and Sirius became friends for like a good 2.3 seconds. And they both wanted to kill Harry at one point. And... It's very thought-provoking, but at the same time, I feel like it was kind of unnecessary. Even though the whole plot and the, the whole action scene was still really great. Regardless, is number 471 in Empire's 500 best movies of all time. It's among the top five best fantasy films of all time from IGN. And I think... With Lupin being a werewolf and Sirius Black portrayed by Gary Oldman. Such a good actor. Such a good actor. Harry became more aggressive as well. 
just to portray the fact that he's growing up, he's getting hormones, he's becoming a man now. And what I've learned as well about the Patronus charm is that it really is overcoming our fears through our Patronus charm. Harry thought that somebody was saving him when it was really himself that was saving himself. And we don't know this until he goes back in time with a time turner. When one thing I loved about the time turner is that it did not fuck with time travel. Yes, it did time travel, but it did not fuck up the reality of it. It was very straightforward to the point, and it did not require any plot holes. Now, to me, there's a few differences from the books and the movies, and I wanted to share that really quick. Now, Prisoner of Azkaban was, at the time of publication, the series' longest book. It necessitated a looser adaption to me because it was very complex so it was kind of necessary but it was evident so the connection with Harry's parents and the Marauder's Map is only briefly mentioned as is Remus Lupin's association to the map additionally it was never mentioned who the Marauders were or who the nicknames Mooney, Wormtail, Patfoot and prongs belong to. Some exposition was removed for dramatic effect. Both the Shrieking Shack and Scabbers are mentioned only briefly in the film, while they receive a more thorough coverage in the book. And most of Sirius Black's backstory is also cut, with no mention whatsoever from the movie about how he escaped Azkaban. And on account... On account of pace and time considerations, the film, it glosses a bit detailed descriptions of magical education. And then with Buckbeak, only one hippogriff is seen and only Malfoy and Harry are seen interacting with him during the lessons. And most other lessons, including Snape's potion classes, which we all know, turn to page 394. The Fidelis charm was complicated, but it was removed entirely from the film, with no explanation given of exactly how Sirius is supposed to have betrayed the Potters to Lord Voldemort. Many of his lines were redistributed amongst Cornelius Fudge and Professor McGonagall. In compensation, McGonagall's exposition was instead given by Snape of the Animagus transformation. Now, the romantic connection between Ron and Hermione shines more in this film. It's more prominent than the book. I guess it was just in response to the criticism of the first two films, kind of giving away sac- like character development, I guess, for mystery and adventure and children's fantasy. Which is good, which is which is not bad, but this movie really personifies the relationship well. The emotional development of all three lead characters is given more attention in this film. Now, briefly in the book, Cho Chang is mentioned, but in the movie, she does not appear whatsoever, 
until the fourth book. Which is understandable because the fourth book, well, the fourth movie in general, introduces such a wide variety of characters. And Prisoner of Azkaban shows a darker tone and more of Harry's emotions. Like the learning of Sirius Black's betrayal of his parents, he shouts in anger. He really is mad, and that shines well in his aggression. Whereas in the book, he's too stunned to move. He doesn't know how to react. He's too scared. Again, he lets fear, depression, anger get to him. But other than that, I think this book and this movie in general was peak of Harry Potter. It's not my favorite, but it's definitely one of the best, if not the best. It's definitely my favorite film of 2004. Yes, beating Spider-Man 2, Shrek 2, all that good stuff. We already know the main antagonists are fear, death, and depression. With chocolate, out of all things, being a metaphor for curing the Dementors. Or if you want to think of it in a literal sense, depression. Which is so on point. But it was 142 minutes. It was shorter than the last. The story was a lot more airtight. And it took a bit longer to make. But it was worth it in the end. Because it turned out to be probably the, the best movie out of the entire series. It was $130 million of a budget, and it made $796.7 million in the box office. To me, that was more than a success. It really shows why I love Harry Potter, to me. And it's no secret why it's a lot of people's favorite Harry Potter movie. I definitely want to give it Second place, I'm debating it. I'm putting it in first place now, but it is what it is. I'm giving this movie a 9 out of 10. Yeah, 9 out of 10. That's fine. Anyways, thank you very much, everybody, for listening to this edition. As always, at the very end, you'll be hearing a chapter reading from one of my favorite chapters in the entire book and in the series in general. It's very short, but it shows a lot of the emotional intensity of this book and in the series in general. So without further ado, thank you again for listening. Now, Chapter 16, Professor Trelawney's Prediction Harry's euphoria at finally winning the Quidditch Cup lasted at least a week. Even the weather seemed to be celebrating. As June approached, the days became cloudless and sultry, and all anybody felt like doing was strolling onto the grounds and flopping down on the grass with several pints of pumpkin juice, perhaps playing a casual game of gobstones or watching 
the giant squid propel itself dreamily across the surface of the lake. But they couldn't. Exams were nearly upon them. And instead of lazing around outside, the students were forced to remain inside the castle, trying to bully their brains into concentrating while enticing wafts of summer air drifted in through the windows. Even Fred and George Weasley had been spotted working. They were about to take their owls, ordinary wizarding levels. Percy was getting ready to take his newt, nastily exhausting wizarding test, the highest qualification Hogwarts offered. As Percy hoped to enter the Ministry of Magic, he needed top grades. He was becoming increasingly edgy and gave very severe punishments to anybody who disturbed the quiet of the common room in the evenings. In fact, the only person who seemed more anxious than Percy was Hermione. Harry and Ron had given up asking her how she was managing to attend several classes at once, but they couldn't restrain themselves when they saw the exam schedule she had drawn up for herself. The first column read, Monday, 9 o'clock, Arithmancy, 9 o'clock, Transfiguration, Lunch, 1 o'clock, Charms, 1 o'clock, Ancient Runes. Hermione, Ron said cautiously, because she was liable to explode when interrupted these days. Uh, are you sure you've copied down these times right? What? snapped Hermione, picking up the exam schedule and examining it. Yes, of course I have. Is there any point asking how you're going to sit for two exams at once? said Harry. No, said Hermione shortly. Have either of you seen my copy of numerology and grammatica? Oh yeah, I borrowed it for a bit of bedtime reading, said Ron, but very quietly. Hermione started shifting heaps of parchment. Harry, Ron, and Hermione had plenty of opportunity to speak to Hagrid. Beaky's getting a bit depressed, Hagrid told them, bending low on the pretense of checking that Harry's flobberworm were still alive. Been cooped up too long, but still, we'll know day after tomorrow, one way or another. They had potions that afternoon, which was an unqualified disaster. Try as Harry might, he couldn't get his confusing concoction to thicken, and Snape, standing watch with an air of vindictive pleasure, scribbled something that looked suspiciously like a zero onto his notes before moving away. Then came astronomy at midnight. 
up on the tallest tower, History of Magic, on Wednesday morning, in which Harry scribbled everything Florian Fortescue had ever told him about medieval witch hunts while wishing he could have had one of Fortescue's chocolate Sundays with him in the stifling classroom. Wednesday morning meant herbology in the greenhouses under a baking hot sun, then back to the common room once more with sunburnt necks, thinking longingly of this time the next day when it would all be over. Their second to last exam on Thursday morning was Defense Against the Dark Arts. Professor Lupin had compiled the most unusual exam any of them had ever taken. A sort of obstacle course outside in the sun where they had to wade across a deep paddling pool containing a grindylo across a series of potholes full of red caps squished their way through a patch of marsh while ignoring misleading directions from a hinky punk then climb into an old trunk and battle with a new bogart excellent harry lupin muttered as harry climbed out of the trunk grinning full marks Flushed with his success, Harry hung around to watch Ron and Hermione. Ron did very well until he reached the hinky punk, which successfully confused him into sinking waist high into the quagmire. Hermione did everything perfectly until she reached the trunk with the bogart in it. After about a minute inside it, she burst out again, screaming. Hermione, said Lupin, startled. What's the matter? Professor McGonagall, Hermione gasped, pointing into the trunk. She she said I'd failed everything. It took a little while to calm Hermione down. When at last... She had regained a grip on herself. She, Harry, and Ron went back into the castle. Ron was still slightly inclined to laugh at Hermione's bogart, but an argument was averted by the sight that met them on top of the steps. Cornelius Fudge, sweating slightly in his pinstripe cloak, was standing there staring out at the grounds he started at the sight of harry hello there harry he said just had an exam i expect nearly finished yes said harry hermione and ron not being on speaking terms with the minister of magic hovered awkwardly in the background lovely day said fudge casting an eye over the lake. Pity, pity. He sighed deeply and looked down at Harry. I'm here on an unpleasant mission, Harry. The committee 
for the disposal of dangerous creatures required a witness to the execution of a mad hippogriff. As I needed to visit Hogwarts to check on the black situation, I was asked to step in. Does that mean the appeals already happened? Ron interrupted, stepping forward. No, no. It's scheduled for this afternoon, said Fudge, looking curiously at Ron. Then you might not have to witness an execution at all, said Ron stoutly. The hippogriff might get off. Before Fudge could answer, two wizards came through the castle doors behind him. One was so ancient, he appeared to be withering before their very eyes. The other was tall and strapping, with a thin back mustache. Harry gathered that they were representatives of the committee for the disposal of dangerous creatures because the very old wizard squinted toward Hagrid's cabin and said in a feeble voice, Dear, dear, I'm getting too old for this. Two o'clock, isn't it, Fudge? The black-mustached man was fingering something in his belt. Harry looked and saw that he was running one broad thumb along the blade of a shining axe. Ron opened his mouth to say something, but Hermione nudged him hard in the ribs and jerked her head toward the entrance hall. Why'd you stop me? said Ron angrily as they entered the great hall for lunch. Did you see them? They've even got the axe ready. This isn't justice. Ron, your dad works for the ministry. You can't Go saying things like that to his boss, said Hermione. But she looked too upset. As long as Hagrid keeps his head this time and argues his case properly, they can't possibly execute Buckbeak. But Harry could tell Hermione didn't really believe what she was saying. All around them, people were talking excitedly as they ate their lunch, happily anticipating the end of the exams that afternoon. But Harry, Ron, and Hermione, lost in worry about Hagrid and Buckbeak, didn't join in. Harry's and Ron's last exam was divination, Hermione's muggle studies. They walked up the marble staircase together. Hermione left them on the first floor and Harry and Ron proceeded all the way up to the seventh where many of their classes were sitting on the spiral staircase to Professor Trelawney's classroom trying to cram in a bit of last minute studying. She's seeing us all separately, Neville informed them as they went down to sit next to him. He had his copy of Unfogging the Future open on his lap at the pages devoted to crystal gazing. Have either of you ever seen anything in the crystal ball? He asked them unhappily. Nope, said Ron in an offhand voice. 
He kept checking his watch. Harry knew that he was counting down the time until Buckbeak's appeal started. The line of people outside the classroom shortened very slowly. As each person climbed back down the silver ladder, the rest of the class hissed. What did she ask? Was it okay? But they all refused to say. She says the crystal balls told her that if I tell you, I'll have a horrible accident, squeaked Neville as he clambered back down the ladder toward Harry and Ron, who had now reached the landing. That's convenient, snorted Ron. You know, I'm starting to think Hermione was right about her. He jabbed his thumb toward the trapdoor overhead. She's a right old fraud. Yeah, said Harry, looking at his own watch. It was now two o'clock. Wish she'd hurry up. Parvati came back down the ladder, glowing with pride. She says, I've got all the makings of a true seer, she informed Harry and Ron. I saw loads of stuff. Well, good luck. She hurried off down the spiral staircase toward Lavender. Ronald Weasley said the familiar misty voice from over their heads. Ron grimaced at Harry and climbed the silver ladder out of sight. Harry was now the only person left to be tested. He settled himself on the floor with his back against the wall, listening to a fly buzzing in the sunny window, his mind across the grounds with Hagrid. Finally, after about 20 minutes, Ron's large feet reappeared on the ladder. How'd it go? Harry asked him, standing up. Rubbish, said Ron. Couldn't see a thing. So I made some stuff up. Don't think she was convinced, though. Meet you in the common room, Harry muttered as Professor Trelawney's voice called, Harry Potter. The tower room was hotter than ever before. The curtains were closed, the fire was alight, and the usual sickly scent made Harry cough as he stumbled through the clutter of chairs and table to where Professor Trelawney sat waiting for him before a large crystal ball. Good day, my dear, she said softly. If you would kindly gaze into the orb, take your time. Then tell me what you see within it. Harry bent over the crystal ball and stared. Stared as hard as he could. Willing it to show him something other than swirling white fog. But nothing happened. Well, Professor Trelawney prompted delicately. What do you see? The heat was overpowering and his nostrils were stinging with the perfumed smoke wafting from the fire beside him. He thought of what Ron had just said and decided to pretend. Uh, said Harry, a dark shape, um, 
What does it resemble? Whispered Trelawney. Think. Now. Harry cast his mind around it, and it landed on Buckbeak. A hippogriff, he said firmly. Indeed, whispered Professor Trelawney, scribbling keenly on the parchment perched upon her knees. My boy, you may well be seeing the outcome of poor Hagrid's trouble with the Ministry of Magic. Look closer. Does the hippogriff appear to uh, have his head? Yes, said Harry firmly. Are you sure? Trelawney urged him. Are you quite sure, dear? You don't see it writhing on the ground, perhaps, and a shadowy figure raising an axe behind it? No, said Harry, starting to feel slightly sick. No blood? No weeping Hagrid? No, said Harry again, wanting more than ever to leave the room and the heat. It looks fine. It's it's flying away. Professor Trelawney sighed. Well, dear, I think we'll leave it there. A little disappointing, but I'm sure you did your best. Relieved, Harry got up, picked up his bag, and turned to go. But then a loud, harsh voice spoke behind him. It will happen tonight. Harry wheeled around. Trelawney had gone rigid in her armchair. Her eyes were unfocused and her mouth sagging. Sorry, said Harry. But Trelawney didn't seem to hear him. Her eyes started to roll. Harry sat there in a panic. She looked as though she was about to have some sort of seizure. He hesitated, thinking of running to the hospital wing. And then, Trelawney spoke again, in the same harsh voice, quite unlike her own. The Dark Lord lies alone and friendless, abandoned by his followers. His servant has been chained these twelve years. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will break free and set out to rejoin his master. The Dark Lord will rise again with his servant's aid, greater and more terrible than he's ever been. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will set out to rejoin his master. Trelawney's head fell forward onto her chest. She made a grunting sort of noise. Harry sat there, staring at her. Then, quite suddenly, Professor Trelawney's head snapped up again. I'm so sorry, dear boy, she said dreamily. The heat of the day, you know, I drifted off for a moment. Harry sat there, staring at her. Is is there anything wrong, my dear? You you just told me that the, the Dark Lord's going to rise again. That his servant's going to go back to him. Trelawney looked thoroughly startled. The Dark Lord? He who must not be named? My dear boy, that's hardly something to joke about. 
rise again indeed. But you just said it. You said the Dark Lord. I think you must have dozed off too, dear, said Trelawney. I would certainly not presume to predict anything quite as far-fetched as that. Harry climbed back down the ladder in the spiral staircase, wondering, had he just heard Trelawney make a real prediction? Or had that been her idea of an impressive end to test? Five minutes later, he was dashing past the security trolls outside the entrance to Gryffindor Tower, Trelawney's words still resounding in his head. People were striding past him in the opposite direction, laughing and joking, heading for the grounds in a bit long-awaited freedom. By the time he had reached the portrait hole and entered the common room, it was almost deserted. Over in the corner, however, sat Ron and Hermione. Professor Trelawney, Harry panted, just told me. But he stopped abruptly at the sight of their faces. Buckbeak lost, said Ron weakly. Haggard's just sent me this. Haggard's note was dry this time. No tears had splattered it. Yet his hand seemed to have shaken so much as he wrote that it was hardly legible. Last appeal. They're going to execute at sunset. Nothing you can do. Don't come down. I don't want you to see it. Hagrid. We've got to go, said Harry at once. He can't just sit there on his own, waiting for the executioner. Sunset, though, said Ron, who was staring out the window, ill, a glazed sort of way. We'd never be allowed, especially you, Harry. Harry sank his head into his hands, thinking, if only... We had the invisibility cloak. Where is it? Said Hermione. Harry told her about leaving it in the passageway under the one-eyed witch. If Snape sees me anywhere near there again, I'm in serious trouble, he finished. That's true, said Hermione, getting to her feet. If he sees you, how do you open the witch's hump again? You, you tap it and say, Descendium, said Harry. But Hermione didn't wait for the rest of his sentence. She strode across the room, pushed open the fat lady's portrait, and vanished from sight. She hasn't gone to get it, Ron said, staring after her. She had. Hermione returned a quarter of an hour later with a silvery cloak folded carefully under her robes. Hermione, I don't know what's gotten into you lately, said Ron, astounded. First you hit Malfoy, then you walk out on Trelawney. Hermione looked rather flattered. They went down to dinner with everybody else, 
but did not return to Gryffindor Tower afterward. Harry had the cloak hidden down the front of his robes. He had to keep his arms folded to hide the lump. They skulked in an empty chamber off the entrance hall, listening until they were sure it was deserted. They heard a last pair of people hurrying across the hall and a door slamming. Hermione poked her head around the door. Okay, she whispered. No one there? Cloak on. Walking very close together so that nobody would see them, they crossed the hall on tiptoe beneath the cloak, then walked down the stone front steps into the grounds. The sun was already sinking behind the forbidden forest, gliding the top branches of the trees. They reached Hagrid's cabin and knocked. He was a minute in answering, and when he did, he looked all around for his visitor, pale-faced and trembling. It's us, Harry hissed. We're waiting the invisibility cloak. Let us in and we can take it off. You shouldn't have come, Hagrid whispered, but he stood back and they stepped inside. Hagrid shut the door quickly and Harry pulled off the cloak. Hagrid was not crying, nor did he throw himself upon their necks. He looked like a man who did not know where he was or what to do. This helplessness was worse to watch than tears. Want some tea? He said. His great hands were shaking as he reached for the kettle. Where's Buckbeak, Hagrid? Said Hermione hesitantly. I, I took him outside, said Hagrid, spilling milk all over the table as he filled up the jug. He's tethered in me pumpkin patch. Thought he ought to see the trees and, and smell the fresh air before. Haggard's hand trembled so violently that the milk jug slipped from his grasp and shattered all over the floor. I'll do it, Haggard, said Hermione quickly, hurrying over and starting to clean up the mess. There's another one in the cupboard, Hagrid said, sitting down and wiping his forehead on his sleeve. Harry glanced at Ron, who looked back hopelessly. Isn't there anything anyone can do, Hagrid? Harry said fiercely, sitting down next to him. Dumbledore. He's tried, said Hagrid. He's got no power to overrule the committee. He told him Buckbeak's all right, but they're scared. You know what Lucius Malfoy's like? Threaten them, I expect. And an executioner, McNair. He's, he's an old pal of Malfoy's. But it'll be quick and clean, and I'll be beside him. Haggard swallowed. His eyes were darting all over the cabin 
as though looking for some shred of hope or comfort. Dumbledore is going to come down while it, while it happens. Wrote me this morning. Said he wants to, to be with me. Great man, Dumbledore. Hermione, who had been rummaging in Hagrid's cupboard for another milk jug, let out a small, quickly stifled sob. She straightened up with a new jug in her hands, fighting back tears. We'll stay with you too, Hagrid, she began, but Hagrid shook his shaggy head. Here, go back up to the castle. I told you, I don't want you watching. And you shouldn't be down here anyway. If Fudge and Dumbledore catch you out here without permission, Harry, you'll be in big trouble. Silent tears were now streaming down Hermione's face. But she hid them from Hagrid, bustling around making tea. Then, as she picked up the milk bottle to pour some into the jug, she let out a shriek. Ron, I don't believe it. It's Scabbers. Ron gaped at her. What are you talking about? Hermione carried the milk jug over to the table and turned it upside down. With a frantic squeak and much scrambling to get back inside, Scabbers the rat came sliding out onto the table. Scabbers, said Rod blankly. Scabbers, what are you doing here? He grabbed the struggling rat and held them up to the light. Scabbers looked dreadful. He was thinner than ever. Large tufts of hair had fallen out, leaving wide, bald patches. And he writhed in Ron's hands as though desperate to free himself. It's okay, Scabbers, said Ron. No cats. There's nothing here to hurt you. Hagrid suddenly stood up, his eyes fixed on the window. His normally ruddy face had gone the color of parchment. They're coming. Harry, Ron, and Hermione whipped around. A group of men was walking down the distant castle steps. In front was Albus Dumbledore, his silver beard gleaming in the dying sun. Next to him trotted Cornelius Fudge. Behind them came the feeble old committee member and the executioner, McNear. You gotta go, said Hagrid. Every inch of him was trembling. They mustn't find you here. Go now. Ron stuffed Scabbers into his pocket and Hermione picked up the cloak. I'll let you out the back way, said Hagrid. They followed him to the door into his back garden. Harry felt strangely unreal, and even more so when he saw Bugbeak a few yards away, tethered to a tree behind Hagrid's pumpkin patch. Bugbeak seemed to know something was happening. He turned his sharp head from side to side, pawed the ground nervously.
It's okay, Beaky, said Hagrid softly. It's okay. He turned to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Go on, he said. Get going. But they didn't move. Hagrid, we can't. We'll tell them what really happened. They can't kill him. Go, said Hagrid fiercely. It's bad enough without you. A lot in trouble and all. They had no choice. As Hermione threw the cloak over Harry and Ron, they heard voices at the front of the cabin. Hagrid looked at the place where they had just vanished from sight. Go quick, he said hoarsely. Don't listen. And he strode back into his cabin as someone knocked at the front door. Slowly, in a kind of horrified trance, Harry, Ron, and Hermione set off silently around Hagrid's house. As they reached the other side, the front door closed with a sharp snap. Please, let's hurry, Hermione whispered. I can't stand it. I can't bear it. They started up the sloping lawn toward the castle. The sun was sinking fast now. The sky had turned to a clear, purple-tinged gray. But to the west, there was a ruby-red glow. Ron stopped dead. Oh, please, Ron, Hermione began. It's Scabbers. He won't stay put. Ron was bent over, trying to keep Scabbers in his pocket, but the rat was going berserk, squeaking madly, twisting and flailing, trying to sink his teeth into Ron's hand. Scabbers, it's me, you idiot, it's Ron, Ron hissed. They heard a door open behind them and men's voices. Oh, Ron, please, let's move. They're going to do it, Hermione breathed. Okay, Scabbers, stay put. They walked forward. Harry, like Hermione, was trying not to listen to the rumble of voices behind them. Ron stopped again. I can't hold him. Scabbers, shut up. Everyone will hear us. The rat was squealing wildly but not loudly enough to cover up the sounds of drifting from Hagrid's garden. There was a jumble of indistinct male voices, a silence, and then, without warning, the unmistakable swish and a thud of an axe. Hermione swayed on the spot. They did it, she whispered to Harry. I, I don't believe it. They actually did it.